I used to tell people all the time that I have two hometowns. My hometown is Garland in Texas, but then a second hometown in Europe, Donetsk. This is Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner. Can you please say your name, who you are? I'm Christopher Atwood. Uh, I'm a master's student at the Harriman Institute. Christopher started at the Harriman in the fall of 2021, within days of moving to New York from Ukraine. He'd lived there on and off for more than a decade. The other part of that decade, he'd spent living in Russia. But he doesn't have any allegiance to it. And since last February, he's been very active in the anti-war efforts, volunteering and co-authoring a report on whether or not Russia violated the Genocide Convention in Ukraine. Can you fill us in on the context of where you're coming from? I did my undergrad at the University of Texas at Arlington. I finished with a degree in Russian. In practice, that was language and literature with a heavier focus on the literature. I should have been able to speak Russian when I graduated. I could understand a good deal, but I didn't feel very confident speaking. He moved to Kyiv in 2010, but he found that he couldn't actually practice Russian there. I knew a lot of Americans. There was a pretty large expat circle. You could kind of live within this little bubble. Even the Ukrainians I would interact with would only speak to me in English. They wanted to practice their English. Eager for Russian conversation, Christopher visited Donetsk, a Russian-speaking city in eastern Ukraine. I went to different bars, restaurants, and very few people had any interest in trying to practice their English. They were far more interested and curious about this weird American who came all the way out to Donetsk and wanted to speak Russian. Christopher moved to Donetsk in December 2010. He taught English at a local private school and studied Russian at a local university. Can you talk about your experience living there before the first invasion? Donetsk, before the war, was a city of a million people. It did not really feel like that. It felt much smaller. It felt much more close-knit. It was a very welcoming city. There is the coal mining industry, there's the metallurgy industry, and the history of that are kind of like embedded into the core of the city itself. So it always felt simultaneously pleasant, but also this feeling in the air of just a, a working person's mentality and atmosphere. The downtown was a hodgepodge of 18th century buildings standard Soviet architecture, and then this modern glass hotel built by an oligarch sticking out eerily among them. Christopher says the combination felt intense. This tension of its history almost fighting with itself. At that point, you obviously had no idea that you were living in a city that would become an occupied territory. What was your perception of kind of the politics around you and how Donetsk related to the rest of Ukraine? Were these issues in any way bubbling to the surface? When I lived in Donetsk, every few weeks there were pro-Russian protests in the city center on Lenin Square. I would ask like random people, like, what's going on here? And everyone would always say, these are just pensioners who are out of touch with reality and think that going back to the Soviet Union is going to somehow solve the problems that they have in their personal lives. 
There was a McDonald's on one of the square's corners. I always thought it was very funny to go get a coffee and just sit on the patio of McDonald's and laugh at these fringe organizations. What was the relationship to language that you picked up on? There was a lot of concern in Donetsk at the time over the proposed language laws that would prohibit regions from having their own secondary languages and would make Ukrainian the only national language of the country. But in practice, I don't think anyone was ever impacted by that. Nobody realistically thought that you could force people in Donetsk to just start speaking Ukrainian. And was there any fear among your friends or people you knew of a Ukrainianization or kind of nationalism in other parts of the country? My impression was that it was mostly older people who felt threatened by a sovereign Ukraine being able to dictate its own language policy. It kind of gets back to these historic narratives about bourgeois nationalism in Ukraine, where the Soviet Union would basically say that anyone who uh, spoke Ukrainian and identified exclusively as Ukrainian and didn't view Ukrainians and Russians as like one greater nation, that those were corrupted bourgeois nationalists who were trying to undermine the political structure of the Soviet Union. After living in Donetsk for a year, Christopher got tired of teaching English and moved to Moscow to work in advertising. In 2013, he relocated to an ad agency in Yekaterinburg, an industrial city that's about a 24-hour drive east of Moscow. The whole time, he maintained a strong connection to Ukraine, visiting frequently and even learning the Ukrainian language in his spare time. Ever since his first weeks in Russia, he'd had this feeling there was something completely distinct and unique about Ukraine and wanting to maintain some kind of direct connection on a daily basis. Then, in 2014, Russia annexed Crimea. Christopher visited Donetsk shortly thereafter to see that the pro-Russian protests had ramped up in the city center. He remembers asking a lot of questions. You just turned to everyone that you met and asked them, what the hell is going on? explain this to me, everybody's perspective at that point became relevant because it was clearly going to be some kind of struggle for the identity and future of the city. There's one conversation with a local coal miner that seemed to encapsulate the feeling of the moment. I asked him point blank, do you want Donetsk to be part of Russia? He thought about it for a second, looked me in the eyes and said, if I wanted to live in Russia, I would have moved to Russia a long time ago. That felt like a very common opinion among people who had any kind of opposition to the Maidan movement or pro-European movements in Ukraine. After the visit, Christopher's friend and his family took him to the airport. I remember looking up at the ceiling at the corner of one of the terminals in the airport, and my friend's mother-in-law was with us, and she'd said, you're always welcome back with us. If you ever need anything, let us know. But less than a month later, Russian-backed separatists and unmarked Russian soldiers occupied Donetsk. A few months after that, there was a battle for the city's airport, and Christopher watched some video footage of the carnage. He found a clip that made him cry. The place where I had been sitting 
roughly the same angle I was looking at, only the airport had been destroyed in Donetsk. What was it like watching a war unfold on a city that you had spent so much time in and living on the enemy territory? I'll say that it was really difficult to be in Russia when there was war happening in Donetsk. I remember distinctly speaking to a friend over the phone about how we we wanted to hang out in Donetsk again together, but I wasn't going to be able to visit him. And a few hours later, he texted me again and said, oh, it looks like I might be staying at the office tonight because there's a guy with an AK-47 downstairs checking everyone's documents. So it was a very difficult thing to accept. It felt like being in Russia and participating in the Russian economy was helping fund the invasion and the attacks on my friends. And can you tell me a little bit about what your friends were describing? So anyone that you talk to from Donetsk who was there in 2014, they always have a story of the moment that they realized they needed to leave Donetsk. One friend told Christopher about a time she was walking home and a man with a gun stopped her and asked for her documents. She said she didn't have to give him her documents, ran home, grabbed all of her money, packed one duffel bag, and ran to the train station, bought a ticket, and went to Lviv. Another friend, a dentist who'd kept working while occupying forces infiltrated his city, told Christopher that he'd heard his boss might be in cahoots with the occupation forces. And then he had a moment where he was at a checkpoint in Donetsk, and he realized that being at a military checkpoint had become normal and second nature to him, and that he felt really uncomfortable that he had become normalized to dealing with military checkpoints on his way to and from work. And so he decided that he would confront his boss about the rumors and went to Kiev soon after that. So these kinds of stories were basically commonplace at that time. Do you have anyone who stayed? I knew a handful of people who stayed, and there are always rumors about what people had to do to stay and not be conscripted and be able to maintain their innocence, so to speak, during that kind of occupation. But for the most part, the people that I knew the best left. And then in Yekaterinburg, did you have any friends who believed the Russian propaganda or supported the occupation? I knew people who told me that I was brainwashed and programmed by American propaganda to believe that Russia was somehow doing something wrong, that it's ironic that I'm against Russian intervention in Ukraine when I'm American and America invaded Iraq. Additionally, when I was at the anti-war protests, there were pro-Putin activists there who bluntly told me that they had to intervene in Ukraine because if they didn't, Ukrainian nationalists would take power and people in Yekaterinburg would be speaking Ukrainian within the next two years. And you mentioned you went to an anti-war protest. What were the anti-war conversations you were hearing in Russia and what was the atmosphere in Yekaterinburg like at that time? In terms of the anti-war protests that I came across in Yekaterinburg in 2014. That was back when the only opposition mayor of a major Russian city was in Yekaterinburg, Yevgeny Roisman. He was very 
open to the Russian opposition and to people being critical of the Kremlin. These anti-war protests were organized by people who understood that they had the protection of the local government. Christopher says that when he thinks about those protests, he realizes that he didn't fully understand the nuances of Russian-Ukrainian relations at the time. And he wasn't so attuned to the imperial narratives that even anti-war Russians used about Ukraine. At the protest in Yekaterinburg, demonstrators had printed out fake draft documents. Saying that eventually we're all going to get drafted into a war to, like, kill our brotherly nation. Christopher didn't think much of this at the time. But during that period, he also attended anti-war protests in Kyiv. And the protest language there was of a very different nature. We're not brothers, brothers don't shoot each other. Something to that effect. At the time, I did not fully appreciate the roots of this conversation about what it might imply to say that two countries are brotherly nations when one country has carried out atrocities historically against the other. And so you left Russia after first the annexation and then the occupation. When was this? And can you just take us very quickly through what happened next? So this would have been about July 2014. I was still in Russia when MH17 was shot down. Sometime around the time that MH17 happened, I realized I can't, I can't, I can't stay in Russia. Do you remember a specific moment when you made the decision to go back? Before the vote on Crimea happened, I remember making a Facebook post that said something along the lines of, if Russia claims any part of Ukraine, I don't know how I can stay in Russia any longer. After that happened, my boss at my ad agency called me into his office. I thought I had done something wrong with one of my projects, and it turned out he just wanted to talk to me about what my intentions were and told me he would support whatever decision I made, just that I should give him as much time as possible to find a replacement. At that point, Christopher decided to transfer to the company's Moscow office. Just because I could be closer to Ukraine, I could leave more quickly if I needed to. So that was the initial compromise. Christopher's boss promised that he could work primarily on ad campaigns that would support opposition media in Russia or somehow protest the invasion and occupation. Then I was sitting in the office in Moscow, and there were two incidents that led to the fact that I realized I could not stay in Russia anymore. There was an incident where my colleagues had printed off DNR and LNR flags and left them on my desk. I knew that they weren't doing this maliciously. They were, like, trying to find a way to laugh about things. In response, Christopher bought a Ukrainian flag on Maidan while visiting Kyiv. And I brought it back to the office in Moscow, and I unfurled the flag and said, hey guys, I think I'm going to hang this flag out the window. Which window should I hang it out of so that everyone knows that we have someone who definitely supports Ukraine in this office? And one of my colleagues got very angry and started yelling at me and telling me that it was so inappropriate for me to bring a political flag into the office that I should keep politics out of the office. And then a few days later, we had a project doing an ad campaign for meat, just meat that you would buy in a grocery store. Christopher sat at his desk trying to write the ad when a close friend sent him a series of messages describing what was happening in Donetsk at the time. And I remember just being like, it's so absurd that I'm sitting here 
trying to come up with an advertisement for meat in Russia while my friend is in Donetsk fearing for his life. That was the moment that I realized I cannot do this anymore. That was when he quit his job and left for Ukraine. I contacted one of my friends in Kiev, and I literally lived on her floor on an air mattress for the next six months. In Kiev, Christopher supported himself through freelance translation, journalism, copywriting, and eventually landed a job at a government-funded Ukrainian TV channel called UATV. Gradually, he fell out of touch with most of his Russian friends. He also fell in love with a Ukrainian documentarian who'd eventually become his wife. In 2021, the couple moved to New York and Christopher started at the Harriman Institute. A few months later, Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It was chaotic. We were just no sleep for, I think, three days, just constantly in communication with friends and family, trying to help to organize everything for everyone and make sure that everyone that we knew were safe. And since then, you've been very, very active in anti-war efforts from the U.S. Can you describe some of the things that you've been doing? In the first couple of weeks, we were seeing such a massive amount of various digital assets just available online, on Twitter, on Telegram, on Instagram, on TikTok, everywhere. And I wanted to be able to capture all of these things so that in the future, when somebody wanted to go back and piece through what was happening at that time, that we would have a way to understand what was happening. Christopher organized a team of graduate students to work on an archive categorizing the various digital materials emerging from the war. That's still a work in progress. Then, through a friend, he found out about the preparation of a report at a think tank called the New Lines Institute that would assess whether or not Russia was violating the genocide convention in Ukraine. He got pulled into the project as a regional specialist. We had a Canadian international human rights lawyer, a different Canadian law professor, an American law professor, and then a whole slew of experts who are genocide experts, regional experts, humanitarian law experts. The report, which was published in May 2022, ultimately found that Russia had violated the Genocide Convention. We found that Russian state media narratives, as well as government official narratives, as well as the narratives being promoted by religious leaders in Russia, were all effectively inciting soldiers to carry out genocide against the Ukrainian people. There was a serious risk that genocide either was or would soon occur in Ukraine. How did it feel to be compiling this report, were you able to separate yourself emotionally? Yeah, for sure. That was the key to making our work basically bulletproof. We had a lot of conversations internally about how we have to compile this, what kinds of sources we need to use, how we need to make this argument. Everyone had to be as impartial as they possibly could. What about in terms of the mental toll that it must have taken on you to be doing this compiling this evidence must have been really difficult. Yes, it was very difficult. I had Russian propagandists haunting my dreams for weeks. 
during and after the publication of the report. And I think it's something that you have to try your best to compartmentalize in your mind and be able to come back to it and engage with it and think about it and deal with it. What's been hardest to compartmentalize is the bombardment of familiar spots. They started attacking Kyiv. They started attacking a lot of places that were very close to me, a place near where uh, I had been living. I could see like the destruction of a street that I had walked down almost every day for a year. This really affected his mental state. I would be on a walk in New York City and I would look off to the side at a building that I would look at every day while I was walking and my brain would imagine that building completely bombed out. And that was a very difficult thing to deal with. Last summer, Christopher went back to Ukraine. It was a personal trip to check up on his wife's family members. But he also took the opportunity to visit places in Kyiv Oblast that Russia had occupied. He went to Bucha, Irpin, Borodyanka, and it's hard for him to put into words what he saw. The two best ways that I've heard to describe it come from two different Ukrainians that I had spoken to. The first was while having a coffee in downtown Irpin and hearing an announcement for an air raid siren. We were looking at where Russia had bombed, and she turns to me and she says, it's so much worse than the photographs, isn't it? I couldn't say anything. I just nodded. You really get a different feeling when you're there. And then another person, an acquaintance that I knew who had lived in Irpin, who said, photos are photos, but it's the smell. She still couldn't go back to Irpin because it just smelled like death to her. Christopher wasn't there during occupation, not during the bombardment. But just being there in the aftermath, it's such an eerie, inescapably uncomfortable feeling. If I met someone who has been to Irpin or Bucha or Brodyanka and tells me that they don't think that that was a coordinated attempt to destroy Ukraineness as a concept in those places, it would be very hard for me to wrap my head around that kind of a perspective. Christopher says there's no way to adjust psychologically to what he's seen. It's just part of life now, and he has to adapt. His coping strategy is to do as much as he can to help Ukrainians. He received a Harriman Civil Society Fellowship that's allowed him to work on advocacy initiatives at Razom for Ukraine, a nonprofit Ukrainian-American human rights organization run by Harriman National Advisory Council member Dora Komiak. Christopher's busy researching Ukraine-related policies and bills, meeting with members of Congress, and organizing public awareness campaigns. The most important thing he can do, he says, is to help uplift Ukrainians in their struggle. Thank you for listening to Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from Columbia University's Harriman Institute. I'm Masha Udensova Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me and edited by Nathan Schiller, with editorial guidance from Marko Andrejcik. Our cover art is by Victoria Tentler Krylov. The music for this series is by Ivan Nebesny, who's still in Ukraine. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review. Those really, really go a long way in helping the podcast. 
Thanks so much. Until next time.